and welcome to the Arrow Video Podcast with Sam and Dan. Uh, my name is Dan Martin. I'm a maybe a Biffa winning, but probably just a Biffa nominated uh, special effects artist. It's still good. I won't know until before this goes out, but after we record it, which is now in the past. Now, here. Uh, and I'm joined, as ever, by my beautiful uh, co-host... Sam Ashurst. And uh, my, my thing that I boasted about last time uh, is still relevant. Um, and in fact, it's on this week. So uh, this Thursday, please tune in to Channel 4's Random Acts at around midnight um, so you can see my television directorial debut, uh, a music video that I shot for an artist called Depressible, which is kind of inspired by Terminator 2 and Deadly Prey. So, uh, <laughs> you know. Say the date. Uh, uh, December 14th, um, the same day as Star Wars The Last Jedi. So watch my thing instead because it's science fiction and it's better. It's shorter. It's shorter and a lot shorter. Yeah. And definitely better as well. Much better. Oh, yeah, easily. So today we are talking about Carrie. Hey! Which is uh, one of the greatest films ever made, uh, I believe. So when does this. So we were lucky enough to see a preview copy of this. It's, it's out not today. Out, yeah, it's out today. Out it's today. out today. So literally, as you listen to this, you can order it on the internet. Uh, December the 11th, I believe, um, is when this goes up. And that's when that's out. So yeah. That's good. Well, I mean, obviously, if you could have pre-ordered it, maybe it'll be in your post box downstairs. Do we have post... No, post box is how you post things. So watch along. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we'll, Welcome we'll... <laughs> to our 97-minute podcast. <laughs> we'll give you a countdown. Press play in five, four, three, two, one. You've wasted your time. We've, because... got, we've got the audio commentary bug now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, incidentally, if you do want to hear us do an audio commentary, then please buy The Villainess, because we do one for that. But we're not here to pimp The Villainess. We're here to talk about Carrie. We are here to talk about Carrie. So when did you first see this film? I feel like I saw a bit of this film before I saw the film. Right. I I have a memory of seeing some bits of it out of context and being interested, mm-hmm. but not knowing what it was. Uh, so presumably that would have been when it was on TV, maybe? Yep. Um, Mine was a TV first watch. Yeah, well. which makes sense. I, I don't actually have a specific memory of seeing the... Uh, seeing it for the first time, it's it feels like it's just one of those films that's always been around, always been present. So aside from those slightly like dislocated moments that I that I saw early on, after that it's just always been part of the filmic knowledge. Yeah, like, as you've seen, I'm kind of the same, really. And I, I, the only thing I really remember is that I must have seen it as a teenager because um, I connected with it quite vividly. Unfortunately, um, you know, I'm. I've got, kind of a weird dude guys like I don't know if that's come across in the past uh, 12 episodes or whatever it is <laughs> but I'm a weird guy um, weird people don't necessarily get on too well at school I didn't get on too well at school uh, had some trouble and so you know Carrie is kind of the ultimate outsider movie Carrie doesn't fit in from the very first scene the, the volleyball sequence where yeah. you know she's not good at sports and uh, oh it's pretty good at football to be fair but, but still <laughs> I <laughs> still watched too many films and was weird. So, um, you know, I identified um, as much as uh, one could as a, a boy in a British comprehensive could identify with Carrie. Obviously, very different rituals. We don't have prom, or at least we didn't then. But you do, um, have, have, people, have people started going to prom in England? Is they have, thing? yeah, I think so, yeah. What the fuck? 
Yeah, but, but there's an ineffable... I don't know, there's just... There's something in Carrie that's really quite primal about the teenage experience. Um, I, more so for, for women, obviously, yeah. because there's stuff represented on film for the first time in Carrie that, that hadn't been seen before. And um, yeah, One we'll of the main reasons it's, it, it languished for so long before being made was, was the, the, the shower scene, the, right. the menstruation scene. That was always the note that came back, we can't put this on, on screen. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it was, it's interesting. There's a, there's a really good, sort of jumping into the, talking about the extras on the disc, but there's a fantastic interview with the writer oh, okay. on the disc where he talks in depth and I hadn't realised until watching that how instrumental he was in the film actually getting made Okay, um, because he was obsessed with it way before it went into production and way before he was official like he was sort of pimping it around without having any real connection to it and and then eventually he sort of ended up attached to it and it it, it worked really well for him hmm. but then he went on he did uh, he wrote some he did some screenplay work on the the remake recently he wrote the libretto for the musical mm-hmm. like he's been connected with it all the way along and and it's a like he's not doing it to name drop but the the people he was hanging out with and the the, the names that crop up in the anecdotes in that interviewer absolutely fantastic he's like yeah so I was there like hanging out with Scorsese and then and like, you know those are the names he's dropping those mm. are the people he was hanging out with and it's yeah it's, re- it's a it's really good insight it's a lot of stuff I've never heard about before that's that's really cool sorry we've, we've, I've no, jumped, no, jumped I, the gun a bit there it's, no no it's that's really great um, but just to go back to that really sort of important kind of pivotal you know pivotal even though it's practically the first scene but the the uh, iconic uh, menstruation shower scene something that i noticed um for the first time watching it you know on the, on the arrow release you know the scene where they throw tampons at, yeah. at carrie what how, what are your feelings on that scene um in general is, is there anything that you've sort of noticed about that I, one thing i really did notice this time uh and it's not like it's something where i didn't see it because of the quality before and mm. it is obviously it's a lovely crisp print but one of the things I really focused on for some reason was how easy it was to just pull the front off the vending machine. <laughs> and, then, and then not just that, but then the, the girl who takes this massive wadge of sanitary towels out of the vending machine so that they can be th- thrown at and therefore humiliate Carrie, she doesn't just take some and then start throwing them at Carrie. She takes some and then passes them out. So she's like, come on, guys, we're going to do this humiliation right. You need some sanitary towels to throw at I, I, I need to correct you. It's not sanitary towels. It's specifically tampons, isn't it? Because no, no, they say the, the mach- it's both. And the stuff oh, that comes okay. out of the machine is sanitary towels. The, they are th- the, the tampons, they're already throwing. Oh, right. And then okay. as, it, as it, the further builds, yeah. um, the front metal plate is just like lifted off. I mean, actually, you know what? Maybe it's me being cynical and assuming that American high schools charge their students for sanitary towels. And maybe... The reason it comes off is because they're free anyway, and it's only efficiency because he doesn't want to have to turn the dial each time. But the the thing I noticed, which um, which may be obvious, I'm not sure, but it's how much it resonates a, a, a stoning, um, like a biblical yeah. stoning, which fits in with the whole sin thing completely. Yeah, it's an amazing sequence, and obviously, Sissy Spacek, from the word go, is just an insane screen presence and you know I can't think of a better casting than than her in this film you mentioned the remake um yeah Chloe Chloe Grace Moretz it just you know it just didn't work you know I haven't actually seen the remake I've I've never seen a a performance like um Sissy Spacek as as Carrie there's just she is just fantastic in it I can't imagine she'd be 
She certainly what the character certainly wasn't as well portrayed in the sequel, Carrie Two: The Rage. No, <laughs> I've never seen the TV movie that came in between though. Yeah, no, I mean that it's it's okay, but um, it's Brian Fuller did that one, but oh, okay. um, yeah, it, uh, but you know it's. it's doesn't touch Carrie and obviously CC Space it was nominated for an Oscar and, and very much deserved it one of those rare horror nominations yeah. um, and she lost out to Faye Dunaway for Network and you know I can't really complain too much yeah, it's difficult yeah she's uh, Dunaway's as good in a different way but yeah it, it's not just about the performances though it's uh, our friend Brian De Palma what an unbelievably well-directed film. First director to have two films on the Arab podcast. What an accolade. Absolutely. He must be very pleased with himself. He bloody should be. Um, yeah, I, you know, I, I think De Palma, outside of our film geek bubble, is really underrated. Like, he should be as known to people as people like Scorsese and, and Spielberg and the rest of it. I, I really I really believe that. Um well, they were they were all at school together and uh, film school together, weren't they? Yeah. And, and, and if you like back in if you read uh, Easy Riders, Raging Bulls, it's always a great book. A great book. It was always him that they thought was going to be the one that really made it. Yeah. They're like, oh, this guy, this guy is going to be the one that blows us all out of the water. And, and in, a, in a way, and Lucas. Yeah. And in a way, not money, not money. No, was. no, no, not, definitely not, not money. Box office gross. No, but in terms of a run of films, like uh, De Palma's up there with all of them. You know, maybe Scorsese's uh, a little bit better, but this film in particular, the direction is astonishing. The information that's conveyed visually beats pretty much any film in any of those guys' catalogue. Carrie is one of the, for example, with Star Wars, beautifully constructed. It's, it's an amazing world that, that they created. But with Carrie, I feel like you could watch this film uh, with no sound, not hear the music, not hear the dialogue, and know exactly what's going on in every scene, not just you know the things that are taking place in front of you, but thematically, he gets so much across uh, through visuals alone, I, yeah. I think. Um, how do you feel about the visuals in this? It's re- yeah, it's it's really clean. Like it's really good. I like he he wanders into De Palma's love of technical gimmicks a little at the end. Not that I think this to the film's detriment with the laughter cam mm-hmm. at the prom, the the kaleidoscope. I, I mean, I, like I said, I'm not saying it's um, I'm not saying this is a bad aspect. I, I think those are the bits where you feel like you can identify it as a identify it as a Palmer film those are his fingerprints but it is a really uh, really tidily shot film would you put the split screen into that showy yeah I would put the split screen into that and actually to be honest I'd also put the first shot where it starts with that jib arm going over the volleyball net down onto SpaceX and then following her as she's pushed to the edge of the court mm. she's in a, a, a she goes from a crowd shot a wide to a one shot on her and then they all rush past her and she gets hit in the face with that hat and called a piece of shit like that's all one shot and again that's very De Palma that's very much what he would make his bread and butter later and but so I, I think I, I, knowing it's him going into it, you can see a lot of that. But again, I feel like, you know, thematically and tonally, like that shot is justified. It feels like, you know, going from like, it's like a God's eye view, where not quite a God's eye shot, but it certainly feels like she's being observed from above and it zooms down and we kind of, we're in her world, which is a 
fucked up well, world. In the script, that wasn't the first scene, was it? No, they I know. They shot yeah, yeah. the Reign of Stones sequence. From the book. From yeah. the book and from the TV movie. I don't know if it's in the remake. Right. Um, they yeah. shot that and then they weren't happy with the effect, so it got cut. But presumably, a Reign of Stones is going to have a lot of high-angle shots in it. Exactly. So it would make sense to transition from that to that high-angle shot on the volleyball pitch. Yeah, like that's a That's a, a continuous aesthetic. Yeah, I, I just feel, you know, the in terms of the split screen, I feel like, uh, unlike um, some of his other movies, he kind of lays the groundwork here. He kind of prepares you for um, the split screen later on by kind of subtle production design stuff. Like the bit where um, Carrie's dragged into the, the closet mm. and the production design is very much like a split screen. And there's a there's a conversation later on that's sort of framed like a split screen without being a split screen, if that makes sense. I'm not talking about split diopter shots, I'm talking about specific yeah, there is framing. A, there's, a, there's a couple of a couple great... Of, and there's like a couple of, oh, it's blinking, you'll miss it, a couple of seconds worth. In the principal's office, there's a really brief, like, maybe 12 frames long split diopter shot. Yeah, and, like and that kind of stuff. Yeah, I love that. Um, it, the, it's the moment where Carrie's waiting outside and, and you can see what's going on um, behind her. Yeah. Like, not, not, I don't think that's split diopter a bit, but it's like a trademark yeah, diploma yeah, shot, yeah. basically. There's loads of his trademarks in it, but I feel like he kind of incorporates them maybe more than in some of his other films where it is a bit more showy I don't know Yeah, I, it never takes you out of the movie like even when it goes into that crazy split screen it kind of feels almost like a, a comic book movie in a weird kind of way like you're not like overwhelmed yeah. by it do you know what I mean yeah I mean I think you're, I, I do think you're right that it doesn't pull you out of the movie and I think that he has fallen foul of that in other places For in his sure. career I mean, I'm a big fan of split screen. I like split screen. Me too, I love it. Especially when it's well done. Why? Hello, comic book directors out there. Anyone listening to this? Yeah, just go and fucking watch Creepshow. That's how you do a comic book movie. (laughs) Please, please start incorporating split screens and and thinking in that way. It's the best way to do a comic book movie. I know it didn't necessarily work well. It worked for me, but... Ang Lee's Hulk, people hate that movie, but I think it's a really good comic book movie and it uses split screen in a really cool way. Dan, you go about to slag off Ang Lee's Hulk. Angley wanted Hulk to be nude in that because he, he said did. it didn't make any sense to uh, to have the shorts stay on. Correct. And they did test renders of the CGI yeah. with Hulk naked. Yeah. Uh, and I was working for a film magazine, a European film magazine uh, at the time, and I got sent an early copy. I still got it of uh, of Hulk, and he wasn't fully rendered; like he was all a bit hot, like low poly. Um, but he's naked. <laughs> and then naked Hulk. You know, Watchmen. Yeah, well, that's it, you know. Although uh, miles ahead, he never uh, he never picks up a tank and swings it around, thus causing a certain amount of centripetal force to <laughs> be exerted on his lower torso. Right, we're we're talking way too much about penises. Hulk dick, Hulk dick. Um, in this Carrie episode, so one of the interesting, well-known things about Carrie is that the auditions went on at the same time as for Star Wars. Um, what you might not be aware of is the fact that William Catt was up for Luke Skywalker and Amy Irving was up for Princess Leia. So in the scenes where they're together, you can kind of pretend that, you know, it's a, uh, <laughs> it's a lost, lost scene from Star Wars. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, cast-wise, um, we've talked about Sissy Spacek quite a lot, but, you know, William Catt and Amy Irving are, are both fantastic. For me... 
Nancy Allen. It's another great Nancy Allen. Well, performance. yeah, we talked about this a little bit on the Blower episode. Did we do a Blower episode? We did. Yeah. So we've done three. No, two. 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 I always. That's the other uh, one. Yeah, the other one is that he didn't do Psycho Two. <laughs> he might as well have done. He, yeah, but he, but, he, he was surprised he didn't. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, so yeah, but that's yeah. So we talked about it on the Blower episode, wasn't it? That it was their their chemistry and relationship on this exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's that's yeah. why they got put together on that film, uh, Travolta and Allen. But for me, Nancy Allen is so sort of sweet and sympathetic in Blowout, but she's just horrible yeah, in Harry. And evil. you know, she yeah, it's part of her range. Whereas you know, Travolta not not too dissimilar. No, I, he's a bit. He's. He's a much more 3D character, obviously, in Blowout. Yeah. Uh, there's not as much to work with. I'm definitely not dissing him in Blowout. He is incredible oh, no, in Blowout. But in Carrie... Yeah. yeah. He's good, though. He's good. He's, he's good. solid. He's solid. He's a, he's a handsome school thing. Yeah. He's a <laughs> handsome school thing. <laughs> um, now, do you think that there was any chance that Carrie influenced Suspiria? Oh, that's interesting. What year was Carrie? Uh, 76. Huh. No. <laughs> I I feel like if Carrie had been an influence on Suspiria, it would have been more evident. Hmm. Suspiria is I mean, it's it's probably widely regarded as Argento's best film. It's not my favourite of his movies. I do like it, but I think other than the aesthetic, it's actually quite light. But I think that if Argento had been pulling for so Look at the Birth of Christmas Queen, which we've already talked about, and he was drawing from the Screaming Mimi for that. And it's not like it was particularly subtle that he was lifting from this other source. Like, that wasn't an official adaptation. That was just him going, oh, I'll have that. And I feel like if he was pulling from Carrie, it would have been much, much more I, present. I, I think it's more likely that Argento was, was and De Palma were both kind of lifting from the same source at roughly the same time. Yeah. Um, I think they're both inspired by Mario Bava. Yeah. But, well, but I know that Argento was a De Palma fan and the timeline roughly works, but if you watch the prom sequence and, and the way it's lit... It's so Suspiria because this came first. I just kind of wondered. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the unlike Suspiria, the lighting is justified in yeah, yeah, in yeah, 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 yeah. Like yeah. it's it is a fucking disco. Yeah, like it's okay to have all those coloured lights. That colour, the very famous photograph. Of I, I love Suspiria, by the way, guys. I'm not. Oh, yeah, I'm not, no, I'm no, not no, on board Dan's. Not on board Dan's diss train. I'm not dissing Suspiria. <laughs> it's it's just no. Do you like Hitchcock? <laughs> <laughs> It's no. no doors into darkness. Oh, fuck's sake. <laughs> no. The thing is, Suspiria is great. Argento, he's made some not so good films, but he's made some genuinely fucking masterworks. And yeah. I think that there are some that overshadow Suspiria. And I'm I'm more of a Giallo fan than I am a like a witchy school movie fan anyway. Right. And I like, you know, Deep Red, Tenebrae, Bob the Crystal Plumage, I prefer those films to Suspiria. I, I do really love Suspiria, but it's an aesthetic love. Like, I don't think anyone thinks that Suspiria is the greatest story ever told. They think it's an amazing film because it's technically gorgeous, it's absolutely enveloping and beautiful. It's one of the reasons I'm slightly nervous about the new one. (laughs) (laughs) Not a primary colour on screen. Yeah, no, when we talked on... When we were talking about Psycho 2, we were talking about the fact that there were all these people that liked Hitchcock. 
uh, and that they all like kind of they were yeah. all put, put drawing from the same well, as it were. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I think if, I think it's, you're definitely right in saying that they were probably both influenced to some degree by Barber. But I, I actually also think that De Palma was influenced by Argento on this one. Can you think of the sequence that I might be thinking of? Um, a deep red influenced moment. Um. Not off the top of my head. What are you? What are you suggesting? So there's the moment where Carrie, um, where she's come back from the prom, um, yeah. she's going to wash herself in the bath. She comes up the stairs, mm-hmm. and there's that sort of quite long shot where you're just looking at Carrie, and then she goes into the bathroom all in one shot, and then she turns on the light, and you see that Carrie's mum has Is been in the... in the shot the whole yeah. time, and you only really see her when the light comes on. And I feel like you know there's enough of a gap. That that might have been influenced by Deep Red. Yeah, I just yeah. like the idea of these guys watching each other's films and uh, potentially being influenced. Yeah, no, um, I can see, I can see that, I can see that. One thing before we move on to recommendations and such, I wanted to talk to you about was the religious imagery in it. I was mm-hmm. struck by not, I mean, obviously, that you know, the mother's very, very religious. Um, although, what particular strain of Christianity she is is slightly confused. But I'm trying to work out why they have Saint Sebastian in their cupboard, uh, in their like naughty step cupboard. I mean, obviously the mother is skewered with flying cutlery, which exactly. is mirrored by Saint Sebastian. Yeah, yeah, the arrows, it's, uh, it's arrows. But I don't understand why Saint Sebastian has been crucified when he wasn't crucified; he was tied to a tree. So they've obviously wanted to keep it as Jesus. It's well, a, is, is he is he crucified? Yeah, he's on the crucifix. Oh, right, so yeah. they've taken a Jesus statue right. and they've put arrows in it as oh, okay. the, so is it Saint Sebastian or is it but he's on a crucifix I, I've actually, or is it Jesus but I he's have, got arrows in it I have never including this time noticed it was crucifix I've yeah. only ever noticed the arrows and the I've probably been so drawn to those insanely creepy eyes which is a yeah musical. they're really bright eyes yeah it's Lovely. a great great um, prop choice in the, in the interview on the disc with the writer he talks about how they didn't have an ending mm. even into photography they hadn't worked out how they were going to end it right so that the, the flying cutlery wasn't in the script at that uh. point spoiler alert yeah so in the book she stops her mother's heart uh, and uh, they were worried that that was a literary device and not a filmic device, so they wanted to Makes ditch sense. that. De Palma wanted to lose it. Um, but they didn't have something to replace it, and they tried loads of different things, and it was really like back and forth on it. And then it was De Palma came up with the idea of the cutlery, and he was trying to convince the writer that it wouldn't be comic, uh, and he told the writer to go away and watch Throne of Blood, Mm. Uh, and it was him watching Mifune get filled with arrows in Throne of Blood that made him go, yeah, fuck it, this will work, this is great. Oh, that's awesome. uh, and so, yeah, so that is a direct lift from Throne of Blood. And uh, apparently, I'm, I'm not sure if this is right, but apparently um, Piper Laurie, it was her choice, her suggestion um, that, that Carrie's mum, uh, Margaret, had that kind of orgasmic reaction to being... Um, stabbed as if martyrdom was the best thing that could possibly have happened. Yeah, I mean to her. that's the that's the the illogical conclusion of the argument of the zealot, isn't it? Mm-hmm. That that to be struck down for your beliefs is the truest, like accolade, the truest form of of sacrifice. And there's loads of you know there's loads of interesting religious iconography in it, whether it's the the Jesus reflected in the mirror or I love 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 the sequence where they're eating dinner in the dark 
and then the lightning flashes and you get the last supper in the background yeah beautiful it's so good De Palma I love you so much the fact that when Carrie's waiting for her date to turn up at the prom they look out of the window and they've contrived a road marking that's an inverted crucifix in the road and then when the car turns up it parks up on the inverted crucifix and um, (laughs) yeah one other sort of visual thing before we wrap it up I kind of really love the moment where they're going to get the pig's blood and it's, yeah. it's that massive wide and it's the mural painted in the background of this kind of idyllic land for the pigs, you know, bright blue sky and all the rest of it. And then they kind of turn the corner and from fantasy into reality, which is this kind of... This gross and gross. Dark, sort of almost Martin-esque yeah. transition from expectation <laughs> yeah. to reality. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And then obviously, you know, poor piggies um, doesn't work out well for them. Anyway, Carrie... Yeah. How should we round, how should we sort of finish this off? How should we round it up? I think we should recommend some films that it, it makes us feel about, makes us think about, makes us feel that. about. <laughs> it's, let's recommend films that makes us feel about. Yeah. But I'm going to go for The Fury, um, which is another Brian De Palma film, and it's another adaptation, and it's also available on Arrow. If you haven't seen it, it is basically Carrie meets Scanners. I think that's probably fair to say yeah. and it's got uh, my favourite director or one of my favourite directors in one of his acting roles um, John Cassavetes <laughs> you love a bit of Cassavetes I love Cassavetes and Kirk Douglas as well I'm not sure what more to say about it other than you know you can buy it on Arrow and it's really good and it's you know got a carry vibe no that's alright that's fine my first recommendation is Firestarter oh, in 1984 I I do have a memory of the first time I watched Firestarter. I think it was released on Forefront Video in the UK. And I was, yeah, and no, I was working as a sous chef in a, I was 16, I guess. And I'd work these like late shifts and then motorbike back to the, like, on my my 50cc bike uh, back home. And I'd always be like wide awake from the, from the ride. And so I'd, I'd put something on when I got back. I'm pretty sure Firestarter was watched in those circumstances for the first time. It's got an amazing soundtrack from Tangerine Dream. It's another kid with psychic powers from Stephen King, based on a King novel. It's directed by Mark Lester, who did Commando, okay. Class of 1984, all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. I really like it. I think it's massively underrated. It's it's no carry, like it's it's not carry, but it's really really good, and I think it's really worth a, a revisit. And and it's the one they should have remade. They shouldn't have bothered remaking Carrie. They should have remade Firestarter. I think. Yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's 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 all there, and the carry remake is garbage and it's um it's a uh, thingy isn't it playing a little kid in Fast Daughter Drew Barrymore Drew Barrymore yes. yeah yeah it's Drew Barrymore my recommendation is another Stephen King film um now for me this film is up there with your carries and your shinings and your the mists in terms <laughs> of uh, the best Stephen King adaptations but it's not an adaptation. Um, it's a, an original screenplay, like Sleepwalkers. Um, it's Storm of the Century from 1999. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it's a, a mini-series, so it's a TV movie, uh, which means you get four hours and 17 minutes of glorious, oh, yeah. glorious that's, king. That's cheating. That's not cheating. I recommend the Langoliers. <laughs> oh, do, don't recommend the Langoliers. Jesus With Christ. cutting-edge CGI. Yeah, and, and the dialogue in which... A, a, a young child says um, the Rice Krispies are coming yes. um, yeah no Langoliers is not good but Storm of the Century is 
very, very good. Uh, I'm not going to say too much about it because it's quite an unpredictable um, story, but very well shot. I think it's got a great score, especially for a TV movie. Um, and it's very unpredictable. And it's kind of essentially about a man who comes to town and brings some bad weather slash vibes with him. Um, put it that way. It's, nice. it's honestly so underrated. Um, and I would put it up there um, with those other films. Um, and yeah, it's a, it's a brand new Stephen King story. So what's not to like? You will not have read it. You will not have read it unless you bought the screenplay, which they did put out as oh, a did book. they? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, my second recommendation is from 1970 by Yaramil Yars or Jaramil Gyres, one combina- some combination of those. Uh, it's Valerie and Her Week of Wonders. Oh, nice. It's on Criterion in the States. I don't think it has a UK Blu-ray. It's, uh, it's a sexual awakening everything you're doing as a as a pubescent teenager is a sin type movie it's a lot more surreal than Carrie uh, it's a very peculiar movie but it's absolutely fantastic I saw a, a screening of it uh, at the what's it called the Genesis Cinema in Mile End a little while ago at the Folk Horror Club yeah it's a fantastic movie lovely soundtrack lots of beautiful floaty uh, Eastern European like Wicker Man-y type biz yeah yeah um, but with vampires and pedo priests and everything you want from a crazy movie from 19 uh, uh, what was it 1970 yeah 1970 yeah nice. worth, worth checking out nice well we're going to stay in the 70s for my first recommendation based on the past couple of weeks um, and as Christmas is approaching it's time for me to watch one of my favourite Christmas movies <laughs> ever made um, a film called The Silent Partner from 1978 and it's a Canadian movie that stars Elliot Gould as a, uh, a bank teller who basically uh, a very, very clever bank teller who predicts that um, his bank might be robbed and acts accordingly to profit from the situation. But unfortunately, the bank robber realises that he doesn't have quite as much money as he should and um, targets uh, Gould's bank teller in a a very cool cat-and-mouse crime movie that has loads of twists and turns, and it's set at Christmas. Um, The the robber's disguise is a Santa outfit, so it's perfect for this time of year. Um, The Silent Partner from 1978. I love it. It's one of my favourites ever, ever. Look in the background for an early uh, young John Candy acting role. The first appearance by John Candy. Yeah. Um, Yeah, uh, really, really great movie. That's fantastic. Uh, and darker in a couple of places than one might expect. Very, is very dark. The reason for its, uh, its is not quite as much as it deserves recognition, I think. Yeah, and like, I, I've got it on VHS. Um, it's, I don't think it's ever been released in this country. Um, Arrow, if there's any way of getting your hands on it, uh, please, please do, because it's so good. It's so good. Right, Dan, your, your recommendation. My first recommendation, um, this is uh, sort of a heart back to some other... I've been going through a particular phase in my watching. Uh, Jen and I, my wife and I, uh, watched The Devil Rides Out, 1968, uh, by Terence Fisher. It's just a really good, fun, British folk horror. Uh, like, semi-contemporary for the time, folk horror. It's not, it's not which one is general kind of era. There are cars, 
but it's still candles and bells and some lovely in camera effects um, when when it all starts going crazy in the third act and lots of very austere and serious RP accents people shouting about the devil well worth watching fantastic and I'm going to just very quickly recommend a film called Straight Time from 1978 it's another re-watch um, I've seen it many many times but I watched it again recently it occasionally plays at the Prince Charles Cinema in the UK I'm sure you'll be able to find it at a cinema in uh, in the States I'm sure um, what's the name Tarantino Cinema I don't know um, Alamo Draft House will play it in Texas, I'm sure. Yeah, um, so uh, it, it'll show somewhere. But Straight Time is the story of uh, an ex-convict um, who's just been released from prison and is trying to sort of do right by his life, uh, resist temptation. But he's got a really annoying parole officer who uh, makes life difficult for him. And uh, he reacts and the film becomes a completely different kind of film. Um, I don't want to say more than that because I spoil it, but um, Dustin Hoffman is uh, incredible in the lead. But it's also got Teresa Russell, um, Gary Busey, Harry Dean Stanton. Um, yeah, it's it's just an incredible cast, and I think I showed it to Dan. Was it last year? Yeah, um, I'd not seen it before. You you recommended it to me. Yeah, we watched it together, and it's just yeah, it's, it's a great film. It's a really really great film. So uh, Straight Time from 1978. My second uh, recommendation is a Sidney Gillat film from 1947. It's Green for Danger. It's a, a murder mystery set during the Second World War. Uh, a murder mystery, someone dies during an operation in a, in a hospital and a police officer is brought in to see whether it's foul play. It's, the, uh, it's Mis- uh, Inspector Cockerill who was a literary character, and there were several books, although Alistair Sim, who plays him in this movie, didn't continue with the role, which is a shame, because he's incredible in it. And he essentially just turns up and annoys people into confessing things. It's sort of early Columbo methods. It's absolutely fantastic. And all the way through this, there is the uh, the sort of constant worry that they're going to get hit by a, a bomb. Because <laughs> it is during the, the sort of the German airstrikes on Britain as well, which adds a, a level of upset to it. They're all meant to be banding together. It's meant to be Britain against the world. Like, you know, uh, this uh, this national togetherness and yet something is happening something untoward is happening that, that causes people to be tearing tearing apart in this little little small community it's fantastic stuff hmm. that sounds very interesting my final recommendation is frankenstein from 2015 now i'm not recommending this over any other version of frankenstein um, but it's one that I watched for the first time recently. So um, it was a recommendation from James Swanton, who we mentioned in the last podcast, uh, an amazing actor who I'm going to be working with soon, and he recommended that I watch this film, um, directed by Bernard Rose and written by Bernard Rose as well, and you may know him best as the director of Candyman. Amazing. Um, And whilst this is nowhere near as good as the incredible Candyman, the perfect Candyman, um, it's still a really, really interesting modern take on the Frankenstein story um, in which um, it's kind of more... Cronenbergian is more like body horror-y than, than other takes on the story and it's, it's set in the modern world, it's set in modern LA 
Um, so you know, not the the traditional take on the Gothic. myth. Not yeah, uh, but it's really really interesting. Shot digitally, so you know it does have that digital look. But there are some shots in there that are almost sort of almost Tarkovsky-esque. There's one shot in particular that reminded me of Stalker, which is uh, another recommendation if you haven't seen Stalker. Sneaky. Fuck me, what a film. <laughs> Watch that above this. But, um, but no, in terms of uh, modern Frankenstein adaptations, it's really interesting and definitely worth a watch. Nice. That's it. No, I've got one more. One more. I've got one more. That's not you it. Cut me off, Sam. <laughs> cut me off like a dead man's arm to go sew it to your creation. <laughs> nice. Um, uh, my last one is a 2004 animated feature called The Place Promised in Our Early Days. Right. It's directed by Makoto Shinkai. It's, so, it's genre, but it's not horror by any means. It's set in an alternate post-Second World War period. The uh, Japan has been split into North and South, uh, much like Korea was after uh, America got involved in that. But there is a, a site, and it's all about these... Um, oh, hang on a minute, maybe it's set after the First World War. Anyway, after a war, Japan has been divided into North and South. Uh, it's mostly about aviation technology, but there is this... Um, there's a sort of a, a, a presence, a beacon that is affecting events and it's about yeah it's I, I can't really explain it without giving away too much it's a really beautiful film it's about love and time and mm. potential and it's fantastic it's really really worth checking out really lovely and now let's go on to extra features are you sure you want to do that bit yeah, definitely <laughs> okay all right, right. Extra features. Extra features. Extra features. Extra features. And so for, for this week's extra features, I spoke to Rosie Fletcher about Carrie. Now, Rosie is the movies editor at Digital Spy, um, but she's also incredibly well regarded uh, in the horror industry um, in the UK yeah. as having a, a lot of expertise. Um, she does like um, script development stuff, um, but she also presents a lot of panels um, and you know she contributes to SFX all sorts of things and in fact she did a panel at last year's Fright Fest which featured um, Jen Handorf uh, aka Uber producer Jen Handorf aka Dan's wife um, also present at that uh, panel very much a tertiary title for her Anna Biller um, of The Love Witch fame and um, Alice Lowe uh, director of Prevenge um, and so, yeah, uh, Rosie is very much known in the scene, and I asked her what makes Carrie so special. So Carrie is one of my favourites, one of my favourite Stephen Kings, but one of my favourite horror films of all time. Certainly, uh, I don't remember exactly how old I was when I first saw it, but I do remember really noticing that it was a, a female-led film where she both was and was not the victim. So she's the protagonist, and all, all the way through, of course, she is a victim. She's a victim of her mother, she's a victim of bullying, but but she is also the hero. So it has such a complex kind of dichotomy of her being someone you feel very sorry for and then her developing this incredible power. So, yeah, it's a beautiful film for those reasons, and you feel her rage. Um, I also love it because, of course, it's a tragedy, because the sad thing about Cara, of course, is that it didn't have to go that way. So, you know, there are all these points in the film, um, obviously the the, the classic scene with her and and Tommy, which is when they're dancing, is, is the biggest tragedy because, of course we all understand that at that point he really does want to dance with her 
um, and she genuinely is happy. And, and this is why it's one of those perfect kind of scenes of dramatic irony where we know we see, the audience sees what's going on in the background and we really want to be happy for her for a moment and we know it's going to be uh, taken away from her and stolen from her. So I thought it was a very... Um, is a very beautiful thing in that way. I also thought, although other films have done it since, it's one of the most interesting films, of, certainly of that time, talking about female, like puberty, female adolescence, um, which is not something I, I, well, I was aware of seeing on screen in that way. So I kind of think that for its time, and, and even now, in a way, it's a very, a very bold thing, a movie to talk about um, the power that young women have when they kind of reach that age. An amazing answer, I'm sure you'll agree. Now, that's about it from us. Twitter, Dan. Twitter. Yeah. Tell us about Twitter. Well, in Twitter's, you can do it. You can write an essay now, can't you? So I've got yeah. a much, much longer handle. Oh God. No, I don't. Uh, it's the same as it was last fortnight. Thirteen uh, Finger FX. One uh, three F I N G E R F for Foxtrot X for X Ray. And what are you talking about at the moment? How much you love Christmas? Yeah, mostly be just talking about all the Christmas films I'm watching, uh, which is actually just, uh, I've put a snow machine in front of my screen, uh, <laughs> and I'm watching Salo. Uh, <laughs> good, that's great. Please, please. It's all Christmassy? Yes. You, you get a little paper cut out of a Christmas hat, you put it somewhere on the screen, and then every time it lines up with a character, like it makes it look like they're wearing the hat, you drink. This is how much Dan loves Christmas. I love Christmas. He loves it. Um, I am uh, at Sam Ashurst, which is S-A-M-A-S-H-U-R-S-T, and I'm probably going to be tweeting about the fact that this week you can watch my music video on Channel 4's Random Acts around midnight on Thursday, on December the 14th this week. Um, are, we, uh, are we not going to... We had some emails we're going to deal with. Yes, Dan, you have those. Okay, we've had some uh, we've had some nice feedback from you guys. There's been some nice stuff on social media in general, actually. But uh, we got an email to our Arrow podcast about the Videodrome uh, episode that we did, uh, and I wanted to read it out. It had some insight uh, in it from one of our listeners. So Mike Tack emailed us uh, and said that as far as he can remember, he saw Videodrome in the cinema when it was released. Uh, he loved it, and he was already a Cronenberg fan from having seen The Brood in the cinema. He goes on to say that the theatrical version was uncut and had all of the gore effects in it that were subsequently removed, subsequently removed by the BBFC, in particular the death of Redacted, when all those tentacles burst out of his face and head. He says he's not 100% sure, but he thinks the BBFC also removed some other bits and pieces involving naked whippings uh, in the video go- uh, Videodrome broadcast and a cigarette being stubbed out onto Debbie Harry's boob as well, and also some Samurai Dreams nudity stuff. So the 1983 cinema cut was 89 minutes, The 1987 VHS release was 80 minutes and 41 seconds, and the 2015 Arrow video release is 88 minutes and 33 seconds, which I suspect is rounded up to 89 minutes on the runtime. Yeah, so so basically, uh, in our Videodrome episode, I mentioned that I felt like I'd only seen a cut version and, and this Yeah, unless you saw it, it, it in the cinema which I presume you didn't. Exactly. And yeah, so, only seen a cut. so this was this was that. So yeah, thank you very much for um sending that in. That was very useful. He also says he would like to hear what we think about good Argento films, which we touched on a little bit in this one. Yeah, we've done that loads. Um he but he says he likes Sleepless. I also quite like Sleepless. I think it's it's the best of the bad Argentos. Interesting. It's got a good soundtrack as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm glad you both like it. <laughs> Do you not like Sleepless? Not really. No, 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 no. No, it's shit. It's um, not shit. <laughs> it's not very good. It's, um, I mean, it's, it's no early Argento, obviously. No, exactly, what is? But you put it, when you stack it up against some of the stuff he's done later, 
It's great. But what's the name of um, of that, that that young man? Uh, that's Mike. Mike Tack. Thank you very much, Mike. Um, very, very much appreciate um, the video drone information. I'm Thank sorry. You. I'm sorry. I don't like sleepless. Oh, you know, you know, each of their own. I'm glad you do. Um, Right, now, and very quickly, before we go, um, we also had a lovely tweet from Seth Edwards, um, who listened to the Season of the Witch podcast um, and said, just listen to the newest episode of the Arrow Video podcast, and the new formula is great. Just wondering, what are your picks for best party movie? Now, Dan replied... So... I, I sort of divided party movie into two different terms, either a film you put on just in the background of a party, something that's fun to have playing, for which I suggested some of the gentler films in the Mondo category, uh, particularly Sweden, Heaven and Hell is something that I tend to put on quite a lot. Uh, Women of the World, the Jacques Petit and Prosperi one, uh, works well for that as well. Or, or the other interpretation of uh, party movie where it's something you all watch a bit pissed and laugh at, like Troll 2 or... Samurai Cop or whatever. Uh, Rene Cardona Jr.'s uh, Night of the Bloody Apes and Beaks the movie, his unofficial remake of Average Hitchcock's The Birds, are two of my favourites that fall into that genre, but there's loads. What have you got, Sam? Well, so Dan's given you plenty there. Um, I will just add in Evil Dead 2 um, to have on silent um, because whenever you look up at it, there's something amazing and visual yeah. going on and you know pretty much everyone at that party will probably have seen it so not spoiling it for anyone um, and if they haven't they will uh, probably rush out and buy it um, so Evil Dead 2 and if you are getting drunk with mates and want to take the piss out of something then uh, a film from 1996 I think um, called Savage starring so. Oliver Grunier um, and it is bonkers batshit insane it's one of those um like a lot of these kind of films that you know that i like like miami connection and samurai cop and all the rest of them have you know become basically mainstream films um well, not mainstream mainstream but people have certainly seen them savage is one that hasn't actually sort of made the leap to that standard yet but just go onto youtube Make sure you find the right trailer, but um, it's like a two-minute trailer, and it basically gives you everything you need to know. Watching it is kind of like experiencing a panic attack. It is insane. It's about a farmer whose family is murdered, and he, he wanders in the desert and gets the powers of a caveman, and he uses them to fight aliens in cyberspace, um, sort of. I'm not going to say any more than that because, believe it or not, there's much more to it than that. But it is bonkers and fun, and it's called Savage, and it's from 1996. That sounds now, amazing. I've not seen that. Actually, do you know what? I will um, put that trailer onto my Twitter. I'll hunt it out, and I'll tweet it. Um, so if you follow me, you'll get to see it. If you don't follow me, follow me, and then you'll be able to watch that insane trailer for Savage. Now, we shall now say our goodbyes because we've, we've waffled on for long enough. A little bit. Um, thank you so much for listening to our waffles and we promise we'll be more professional next time. Bye-bye. Bye.